Welcome to Technovation, a weekly conversation with people who are shaping the technology landscape. I'm Peter High, president of Meta Strategy, advisor to technology executives, Forbes columnist, book author, and your host. Each episode of Technovation features insights from top executives and thought leaders at the intersection of business, technology, and innovation. If you like what you hear, we'd be grateful if you give us a rating on iTunes or through whatever other source you use for podcasts. And please subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Thank you. My guest today is Dale Jones. Dale's the Chief Executive Officer of Diversified Search, one of the nation's top executive search firms. As CEO, Dale is responsible for the oversight and management of the firm, as well as its global CEO advisory services. He's also on the boards of Northwestern Mutual and Chick-fil-A, among other companies. Prior to joining Diversified Search, Dale served as a vice chairman and partner of the CEO and board practice of Hydric and Struggles. In this interview, we discuss Dale's work as the CEO of Diversified Search, but we also speak about how COVID has accelerated changes around transformation and innovation. As a leader of color, I was also interested in getting his thoughts on how the pandemic has underscored racial disparities in the United States, and we also discuss the importance of listening before taking a stand against racial injustice, and how diverse teams add value to companies in terms of thinking and processing, among a variety of other topics. Before we get to our interview, I wanted to introduce you to our sponsor, Zoho and the company's president, Timothy Casby. Prior to taking on his current role, he was the chief information officer of a number of companies, including Reliance Industries, Sears, Intrexon, and the Warehouse Group. He's now at Zoho, a most unusual enterprise software company, and wanted to share some perspectives from it. Timothy, take it away. Peter, you keep calling us an unusual enterprise software company. I think we should talk about that a bit. Yes, we have not borrowed a single dollar from a VC or a bank, and ended up bootstrapping our way to multi-billion dollar SaaS business with over 60 million enterprise users. That itself is unusual for a tech company. But the principles that have kept us from accepting VC term sheets are simple. We believe all our employees should have good night's sleep each night, be it month-end, quarter-end, or year-end. To enable this principle, we have stayed private and have not dipped into public money. We don't believe in debt and discourage anyone from getting in one. A good night's sleep has its premium. Yes, we believe in good night's sleep and eating healthy foods. That's why we leave money on the table. It comes from our principle of eating healthy food. Just because there is food on the table, we don't believe it's healthy to eat it all. Therefore, any product we market, be it CRM, Sign, Help Desk, and 100 others, these will be many multiples cheaper than our nearest competitor. And it comes from the principle of leaving money on the table. Find out more about our unusual enterprise company at Zoho.com. Thanks, Timothy. I also wanted to share a quick message from our sponsor, Sykes. Sykes is a leading provider of multi-channel demand generation and customer engagement services, helping Global 2000 companies enhance touch points at every stage of the customer journey. To share some perspectives, I'll briefly turn it over to Ian Barkin, the company's chief strategy and marketing officer. Customers don't want and don't deserve a new normal. They deserve and want a better normal. At Sykes, we know this because we spend over 3 billion minutes a year listening to and serving customers of the world's leading brands. And with that much listening, you can't help but know what delights, what infuriates, and what drives customer behaviors and decisions. So what is a better normal? We believe it's the delivery of a truly intelligent customer experience. The call to action has never been clearer for CIOs, CTOs, and the broader C-suite. New is not enough, and the time for tinkering has passed. The winning combination of technology, talent, and customer insight is how to create intelligent customer experiences and a truly better normal. To read more about intelligent customer experiences, check out sykes.com forward slash ICX. Thanks, Ian. And now on to our interview. Please note that this interview is recorded live. Dale began his career in financial services uh, before getting into executive recruiting, which he did in 1999 with the Hydric and Struggles. He was a managing partner in the Atlanta office there. Uh, in, 20, in 2007, he took a six-year hiatus from the industry and uh, led a philanthropic foundation endowed by uh, AOL founder Steve Case and his wife, Jean, that was dedicated to finding clean water in Africa um, and has some really interesting stories to tell from that, from that turn. That was also the, uh, what brought him to Washington, D.C. Uh, 13 years ago. 
2013, he became the chief executive officer of Diversified Search, the post he currently has. He's been a board member of a number of organizations, including Northwestern Mutual, Coles, the Special Olympics, uh, and his alma mater, Morehouse College. Um, and uh, in doing a little bit of homework, Dale, I found a fantastic quote of yours on your website about your philosophy on great leadership that I wanted to, to mention. Um, I'm quoting you now. I think it's important that leaders have the ability to inspire and motivate people and to lead by example. I think the best leaders have been through some testing in their journey so that they can really empathize not only with the people that they lead, but with their customers. And gosh, what a great way to, uh, to frame things. Uh, so Dale, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Oh, it's my pleasure. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Uh, well, I thought, Dale, we would begin with your current post. As I mentioned a moment ago, you're the chief executive officer of Diversified Search. And to most people here, they will certainly be uh, familiar with what executive search is and does. But maybe you could take a moment and describe Diversified Search and some of its points of differentiation in the space. Sure. Well, we're a global firm um, in recruiting, and we recruit at the C-suite level. Um, Forbes just another, uh, uh, ranked us again in the top five of, uh, of rec executive recruiting firms in, in the country, uh, which we are honored to have that distinction. Um, and in addition to that, um, you know, we believe that uh, great leadership transforms people, uh, organizations, uh, and the world. And so our uh, point of differentiation here is we oftentimes are looking for leaders who can, number one, build culture. Uh, two, foster innovation, uh, and three, deliver on social and financial performance. Um, we, uh, our firm was founded about 50 years ago by a woman to help women find jobs in corporate America. And so this whole notion of diversity and inclusion has been a part of our DNA since our inception. But we have a unique bent in that we believe that oftentimes leaders get hired for technical competencies but they get fired uh, for leadership deficiencies. And so one of the ways in which we have differentiated ourselves is becoming masters of fit and culture to be sure that leaders have more than just the technical competencies that are needed, but they also have uh, the right leadership skills in order to move an organization forward. So um, again, we're um, uh, you know, a multi-practice uh, um, firm uh, in the areas of healthcare, uh, life sciences, technology, uh, higher education, uh, uh, we, in the industrial practice, the financial services area, consumer practice, we recruit executives to serve on corporate boards, uh, and we do a fair amount of C-suite uh, succession planning for organizations that are looking for leaders uh, for, for, the, for the next season uh, of, of leadership. And I should mention, uh, I hasten to add that Tony Lang, a colleague of yours who runs the technology practice, is a good friend. We certainly think very highly of him and the work that he does in the space that we know so well. Well, and Tony's a great example of a leader who uh, understands how important, um, you know, uh, transformation and innovation is to organizations. Uh, he's helped our firm understand uh, that, that every company is a technology company today uh, and has really been on the the cutting edge of helping us think through uh, technology and the digital divide and how important it is for us to help our clients think strategically about the role that technology plays uh, in their organization and, and how we should be at the centerpiece of it and not as an ancillary uh, resource as it's been in the past. Yeah. I really like uh, the your, your thoughts about that cultural fit and the importance of uh, fostering culture uh, in, in the placements that you, you make. And as somebody who personally gets so involved in chief executive officer uh, placements, so, so the, the person, the man or woman who's going to be at the top and really influencing this, and in some cases coming in from the outside. And so both bringing what they perhaps have has, has made them successful from the outside while also being sensitive to the, the differences of the environment that they're joining. Can you take, talk, talk just a little bit about the ways in which you and your colleagues assess that? That seems like not only is it a, an essential element to determine whether or not a leader is going to be successful, but also a very difficult one as well. Maybe just uh, talk a little bit further about that, if you would, Dale. Sure. So, so, so every organization has its own unique culture. And prior to taking on uh, a senior level search for an organization, we do our due diligence uh, with the, the either the board or the senior management team or both to really understand uh, how is the organization led, 
um, what are the values of the organization, and and have those values been operationalized in the in the in the day to day of the business? You all know that that every company has a a list of values, oftentimes and a mission statement, but 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 few live up to that or, or live it out. Uh, they're great words, but oftentimes they've not been operationalized. So so we do our due diligence to understand what the formal and informal ways in which an organization operates. Um, and if it's a public company or privately held company, or if there's a founder in place. Uh, and so there are nuances that we pick up on uh, to understand the culture and the kind of people that we think would thrive in that organization. And so it's both an art and a science. So we do our due diligence with the company, but then we do our due diligence with candidates. And it's more than just the resume, but it's also understanding the personal and professional stories of those individuals that we would recommend for a role in an organization. Um, and so we believe that uh, in order to be masters of fit, um, we under, need to understand the, the, the culture and the chemistry of the organization and the kind of people that have been successful uh, in, in an organization in the past. Um, and so uh, I can talk more about that later, but, but uh, essentially that's, that's it. it's, it's our doing our due diligence, and it's our becoming what I call good students of human behavior, uh, both related to the organization, but also with, with respect to individuals. I wanted to ask you, you know, it strikes me, Dale, that you're an ideal person as someone who speaks so often with uh, heads of companies across the US, U.S. and elsewhere, and also being a board member to such meaningful and sizable and complex organizations as you are, as to some of the things you're learning during this period of crisis, uh, the, the, the health crisis, the economic crisis, some of the social crisis that we'll get into in greater depth uh, in a moment. Can you talk a little bit about some of the lessons that you're taking from this and maybe your own read, um, such as it is, uh, I hasten to add you're not an epidemiologist, but as to what you're seeing from the companies that, you, uh, that you're regularly in touch with in terms of where, where do things stand now? Well, a number of things. You know, the thing that, that we all know is um, with the advent of COVID-19, um, that the first issue was, was uh, really around the health and safety of employees and, and leaders communicating how important those issues are uh, to the lifeblood of the organization. And so the, the health and safety of employees as well as customers was really taken seriously and critical. But the other thing you all know is business continuity was was also essential, um, and it really put technology at the forefront of everything we do, particularly with those who didn't get it before. Uh, they got it um, uh, immediately. Uh, I serve on the board of Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance, and and I'll never forget the day when the last day when people were in the offices uh, uh, in you know mid March, and and no one has returned to the office since but the business continues to move forward. Uh, and in some ways, um, you all can testify to this, that, that COVID has actually accelerated some changes uh, around transformation and innovation in organizations uh, or uh, ideas that lie dormant have now become central to, to the way people uh, think and operate. But the other thing about the, the, the crisis we've been in with COVID is uh, it's caused us to think differently about how do we manage costs? How do we find ways to innovate? Uh, how do we think about ways to grow a business, uh, to, to deliver different value, uh, and even create greater efficiencies? So, so much of the, the curse of the disease has also uh, perhaps uh, unintended consequences to bring about accelerated change uh, that needed to happen in organizations. Because the truth is, this watershed moment um, will leave us to a point where we won't, uh, very little will go back to the way it was, right? Uh, and we've got to figure out how do we operate and what the new normal might look like uh, and technology is going to be at the forefront of all of that for the rest of our rest of our lives I believe yeah it's very very interesting um, you know I recently had a, a conversation with a gentleman named Peter Weil who runs the MIT Center for Information Systems Research a font of knowledge in the space of technology and the intersection of technology and digital uh, within business and he uh, this research that he and his team have done into many hundreds of businesses uh, of scale into the advantages, all things, all, all other things being equal to having digital leaders, people that is who have technology and digital savvy uh, on their boards 
um, the advantages that they are reaping now as a result of that counsel that they get, in addition, of course, to the technology leaders within the company. Uh, it's actually really interesting and provocative research. I'll remember to pass some of it to you. I, I think you'd find it very interesting, Dale. But as someone who both is a member of of boards of organizations and also thinks to hire into it, and I know from our past conversations, somebody who's also um, always very curious and interested in getting to know great leaders with technology and digital experiences to add to boards. Can you talk a little bit about that evolution and the role you see uh, great digital and technology leaders playing uh, on the boards of major organizations? Yeah, so in the 20 years I've been in this business, 20 plus years I've been in, the, in this business um, and, and recruiting um, directors to, to uh, potential candidates for, for boards, uh, I've seen the evolution where uh, it was primarily sitting CEOs or COOs or CFOs to serve on boards. Uh, and every now and then there'd be someone related to technology on a board, but, but it was really uh, the exception rather than the rule. Uh, and then in the last uh, five or actually the last seven to 10 years, I've seen this evolution happen. Uh, I'll never forget uh, seven years ago, a major um, um, Fortune 50 company said, look, we need, to, we need you to find someone who is a, a digital um, uh, native and not a digital immigrant. You know, we, we want a digital native, someone who really understands the technology and, and its implications for the, for the business world. Um, and I had to share with the board that at that time, uh, the digital natives um, were, were perhaps going to be the youngest folks to, to, to don the door of a board room. Um, and, and, and while they might have the technology experience, they may not have the business experience, but that has all changed. Um, we're seeing more and more uh, a cry, a clarion call for leaders who understand digital transformation, understand the need for um, uh, leading through innovation, uh, understanding how technology plays a central part in, 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 in the marketplace. So um, you all should know that you've become um, you, you move from what might appear to be the sidelines in, in, in C-suite organizations to being uh, center stage because we realize that it's not just technology, is not just an enabler, it's a part of the, the, the key strategic strategy. So we see more of it today. Uh, we, we're seeing more CIOs, um, um, you know, uh, transition into the C-suite of running the, um, uh, the company, the operations. Um, I talked to an individual the other day, just parenthetically, who um, was an IT leader, uh, felt like he was not getting enough exposure to the rest of the business. And so he volunteered to become a senior advisor to the COO so he could get the kind of experience and exposure, but he's also giving great insight and depth of knowledge to the operations of the business by, by taking on that role. Um, but boardrooms today clearly uh, are looking for uh, leaders who have this kind of experience uh, around understanding how technology will play today, but also lead us into the future. I, I alluded uh, a moment ago, Dale, to the fact that we have a couple of new crises here in the pandemic and the form that the economic crisis has taken as a consequence of the pandemic. Uh, there is a, an additional uh, crisis afoot that is not new, and that is re related to social injustice uh, in our country. And this is something you and I have spoken about in the past, and I've, I've always been, been uh, both moved by, by your, your story, but also uh, have gained mightily from your wisdom uh, with regard to some of these very issues. Um, and I wonder if you could just take a moment, and um, you'll forgive me for starting with a, with a general question. I'll, I'll, I'll get a little bit more into specifics as the conversation continues, but maybe you can just give us your sort of read as to where things stand currently. Well, you know, it's 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 it, it, it's hard to to um, uh, to come to some uh, conclusion about where things stand because I think we all have front row seats today um, to the events of the past few months that have forced the nation and the world uh, to recognize uh, the longstanding social and economic injustices facing uh, African Americans, but also uh, Black and Brown people, but also um, uh, people who uh, live uh, in in poverty, um, and 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 essentially, what's happened is, is is that the this crisis has further lifted the veil of disparities, 
um, in health, in income, in wealth, in education, uh, the massive incarceration issues, um, and, and and even the demonstration of the last vestiges of what we call systemic racism uh, and even unconscious bias. And so, uh, uh, you know, we, we're in a place today where um, I do believe uh, uh, businesses around the globe and even in the U.S. are saying, how do we overcome these, um, these uh, gaps and injustices and how do we close the gap uh, to create a more inclusive uh, environment, but also um, uh, find some way to invest in communities to, um, you know, bring these unequal parts um, together. Um, and so we're in a, uh, you know, we're in a crisis. Um, and, and in some ways, if, if, if nothing's done, we'll see, uh, we could see, uh, you know, racial and, and, and class warfare, you know, which I hope doesn't happen. Um, but, but the levels of frustration uh, are, are laid bare today. And I think the, the COVID crisis uh, perhaps was the, the catalyst to uncover uh, these disparities. Uh, and now more than ever, we have an opportunity, I, I believe, to galvanize the different segments of our world, both the private and public sector, to, in, to address these injustices that have, uh, you know, in, in a truly distinctive way. Um, I don't believe we're in a, in a passing phase uh, or something that's happened today and will be gone tomorrow. I think we, we're in a watershed place and moment in the country uh, that we've got to find some regenerative solutions uh, that will empower communities uh, and people like, like never before. Uh, or we'll continue to see the scales of, of, of issues um, that we've experienced in the last few months happening uh, around the country. Uh, so, 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 so let me stop uh, babbling here um, uh, and, um, and be responsive to any specific questions you might have, but I feel like we're in a moment where, where um, you know, something must be done and we must all say, what can we do to address some of these issues? And, and what are you seeing of uh, companies that you're associated with, either as clients or on the board of, of those organizations? What are some of the things that they're doing that you're advising them to do in order to be part of the solution rather than the problem? Well, I've said to a number of CEOs who I've, I've had a number of conversations with over the last a few months um, uh, that, you know, before you take a stand, you need to first sit down and listen <laughs> and, and, and listen to what the issues are that people are communicating and and hear um, the the stories of those who uh, feel victimized or feel um, they've been left out of the, the equation, whether it be in the company or in the community. And so I think listening is important. Uh, and I think we have to listen outside of our own zip code. You know, too often we all have our favorite um, uh, stations we turn to for news or social media, uh, and if you happen to be, uh, you know, liberal, you, you go you go to to a liberal progressive station, or if you happen to be conservative, you go to a conservative station. And I tell folks, you know, you might want to change the dial and listen to the other point of view uh, to understand why the gap is so so wide. Um, but I'm, but but I'm finding some companies are answering the the, the call. Uh, and, and back to your question. You know, we've seen some initiatives where companies are investing, um, uh, you know, portions of their profits over the next several years uh, to reverse inequities in their industries. Uh, we've seen uh, individuals get involved in mentoring um, initiatives. You know, there's a huge uh, adult population of folks who are illiterate. Uh, they grew up in this country. They've gone to high school, but, but they are illiterate and, and can't navigate the world today. Uh, there's the digital uh, illiteracy issue um, and the digital divide, which is great. You know, when kids ended up having to uh, learn from home, um, uh, the question was, where are the computers, number one? And number two, where's the broadband? <laughs> um, and so schools found out quickly that, that going digital uh, created lots of challenges, particularly with uh, young people or kids uh, who live in poverty. Um, you know, you send a laptop to the home and the laptop disappears, or you send a laptop to the home and no one knows how to, what to do with it. 
uh, or the parent might be illiterate, uh, or there's no broadband in order to to um, uh, put this into motion. So um, the the crisis we're in has uncovered so many gaps that it, it's almost insurmountable uh, to think um, that that people are trying to navigate um, all of this. And it's not just race; a lot of it is class because the economic divide is large um, and 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 great. Um, we're seeing um, foundations increase their commitment to giving to um, to uh, organizations um, that are involved in mentoring and developing young people, but also uh, helping um, to deal with some of the, the issues of, uh, of economic disparity uh, that, that that are there. Um, you know, we know that COVID, uh, 40 percent of black businesses are shut down since March of 2020. Uh, not just black businesses and brown businesses, but but all businesses, right? Uh, especially if they're small businesses, um, and and so um, there there are companies that are saying we will invest and come alongside of these uh, organizations that need a lift and a hand uh, to navigate through the crisis, but also to reemerge uh, in a very powerful and productive way. That's very helpful, and and really appreciate you sharing your perspective. Um, I wonder, Dale, if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit about your story. It's something that I've been, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, really moved to, to learn more about. Um, you, you're, you were raised in Dallas, Texas. Your mother uh, um, uh, was a kindergarten teacher and was one of the reasons uh, why you had a, a love of learning early. Uh, your father was a janitor who, who, in many ways, gave you a work ethic very early as you and your brother uh, would spend time with him, oftentimes on weekends, cleaning office buildings. And um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, your own story. Everyone's story is unique, of course, uh, uh, but your path from, from your beginnings to the chief executive officer of a major organization, um, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable rise. And I wonder if you could maybe just take a moment and reflect on some of the people who were influential to you uh, during the course of that rise. Well, thank you, Peter. Um, you know, yes, my... Uh Mother was a teacher, and my dad was a shoe cobbler by day and a janitor by night. And um, you know, it was it was my mother's death at a young age of cancer that left my dad a widower to raise three boys. Um, and uh, he also had free labor, so he, so 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 we worked with him in the evenings uh, to to uh, navigate the the economic challenges uh, of life. Um, and uh, interesting enough, my dad became very ill. Uh, several years after my mother's death and was on a dialysis machine for many years. And so uh, I saw not only um, sort of death at an early age of my mother, but also failing health of my dad, who was committed to educating his three sons and getting us to college and to have a better life. Um, so I will tell you, first of all, the, the community in which I grew up in, in Dallas, Texas, uh, the faith community of our church, but also of our neighbors who surrounded my dad and said, you know, we want to we want to be in these young men, the lives of these young boys, and, and help them have a better opportunity. Uh, and so the community, the village, uh, uh, really uh, stood around my dad and, um, uh, and our family uh, to uh, um, mentor us um, and motivate us to uh, move out of the circumstances in which we found ourselves. Um, but then I will tell you, um, uh, going to Morehouse College in Atlanta was a defining moment for my brother and I, uh, where neighbors helped us get there, and and it was at Morehouse where we were inspired uh, to dream big dreams and to um, uh, live above the circumstances, but and, and not to see ourselves as victims. Um, uh, it was really the uh, at, at the end of my college career that I was recruited to the, my 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 first job in a bank, that um, uh, the the uh, executive at the bank hired me and he said, you know, I want to become your rabbi. Um, and whatever you need uh, from me by way of, of, um, of anything, let me know. And that individual who hired me into the banking world became my mentor, or his words, my rabbi, while I was there. Um, and he invested in me. Um, and so he became not just mentor, but sponsor. And I think there's a big difference between being a mentor and a sponsor. Um, and and uh, really helped me grow in my career uh, at, at the bank there in Atlanta, which is now part of Bank of America. Uh, but this is the same individual years later ended up in the executive recruiting business. He ended up uh, in um, the firm Hydrogen Struggles, where I joined 
um, and recruited me into this business. He says, I think you would be great at uh, helping to manage clients, but also uh, to think about human capital uh, and how you help people uh, find the fit in organizations and do well in it. So it's amazing the power of relationships. This, this individual who recruited me off of a college campus got me into banking uh, and then recruited me years later uh, into the executive recruiting business um, is a story that I shall, shall never forget. Um, and so it just reminds me that um, none of us can, can do what we do alone. Uh, I never would have imagined that I would be, become the CEO of, of a of an, uh, firm like this on North Serval uh, Fortune uh, 100 boards, uh, as I have done and am, am doing. But it is, it's been through relationships and through mentorship uh, and friends on the journey who have invested in me and wanted to, to see me uh, get to where I am today. And I think many of you on this call, on this podcast, can give your own stories of those who have uh, mentored you along the way. And, and, while I, and that's why I think it's so important that in life, we should be mentoring others. We should have peer relationships of friends who can walk alongside of us. Um, um, and um, uh, so, so, so we should be mentoring others. Uh, and, and we should also have a mentor. We should be looking up to someone who's, who's mentoring us or giving us wisdom and insight. We should be mentoring down, and then we should have these peer relationships with friends in our, in our professional, personal community who help us along the way in terms of our journey. You alluded a, a moment ago. Thank you so much for, for that description, Adele. That really, um, you know, it's a, as I say, it's a moving story to tell, and it's, it helps uh, clarify some of the things uh, that were meaningful to you. But I think there's also ways that each of us can translate some of, the, some of what you've experienced, both as mentor and mentee, into uh, people in our lives. Um, you, t- you talked a moment ago about the uh, importance of, you know, finding causes or getting involved in, in various ways. I wonder if there are there particular um, organizations uh, that you that you have found to be uh, of, of greatest use during these times uh, that you, you might want to shine a light on? Sure. You know, first, I, I think people should certainly follow th- their passion, right? Um, in terms of uh, areas of interest, but um, there's one organization here in Washington. It's a national organization called uh, MLT, um, a man- you know, Management Leaders for Tomorrow, and they have um, helped uh, black and brown individuals and those coming from um, underserved communities uh, navigate their way from college into graduate programs as well as uh, corporate America. And MLT is run by John Rice. Uh, and it's a national organization that you can look up, but I, I found that to be a great place uh, in which to, um, to give time. Uh, and then uh, finding um, you know, local colleges in your community um, or, or high schools even where um, there's just a desperate need for volunteers to help young people become uh, literate in, in the digital context, but also uh, in just a pure um, a context of life uh, uh, in terms of sort of social graces. Um, you know, Big Brothers, Big Sisters is a great group. Um, um, uh, Boys and Girls Clubs is, a, is another. Um, uh, Special Olympics for children with um, intellectual disabilities that I've been involved in has been a great resource. Um, the Salvation Army, uh, which is in every zip code in the country, uh, has um, education programs and um, uh, youth centers uh, that are in desperate need of volunteers. Uh, you know, there are lots of people living day to day in shelters uh, through some of these programs where the only outlet that they get is uh, by volunteers coming in to engage with young people, to uh, inspire them, to motivate them, and to really change the, t- the, tra- the trajectory of, of, of their lives. Are there any best practices or thoughts you can share on how to appropriately reflect business objectives tied to diversity and leadership? You know, McKinsey has done this elaborate study on how diversity, diverse teams really add value to companies uh, in terms of the thinking and the processing. Uh, and it's diverse around gender. It's diverse around gender, ethnicity, uh, around um, uh, regions. Uh, and the study is quite um, uh, um, uh, remarkable, and um, so, so the data is there. Uh, not, not only with with what um, McKinsey has done, but but others uh, out of the University of Michigan and other places have written 
um, and done elaborate studies on how important diversity is in creating high-performing teams. And so I would say, you know, using that, because what we don't want to do is approach, you know, diversity inclusion from, from a standpoint of charity, right? I mean, obviously, it's a good thing to do. Uh, it feels good. But the truth is, we know that diverse teams really add great value um, to the equation because people think differently who come from different experiences um, and and can really cause a team to uh, be, move out of its monolithic thinking to, to create great value. So I would say using that as a benchmark um, uh, or as a background is, can, can be really helpful uh, in terms of helping uh, clients uh, improve and refine their, their strategies for, for growth and, uh, and for impact. You mentioned earlier the concept of unconscious bias. I'm curious, from your perspective, both in your search practice uh, when you're looking for executives, but also with companies that you're engaged with at the board level, uh, how are companies addressing this or at least thinking about it? I think a number of companies, uh, unfortunately, are still at the early stages of recognizing that there's such a thing as unconscious bias, right? Um, and so the, the, the first step uh, is to, to recognize that, that we all have unconscious bias. Um, there's, there's first awareness of diversity, but then, then there's the unconscious bias is realized when people start talking about the experiences they've had and how they've been treated uh, or, or poorly treated in a process. Um, and then we say, you know, once you, you admit that, that, that you've got a problem and that we all have this, then how do we move to what we call conscious inclusion? Uh, that's building the desire and insight and capacity of people to make decisions and to do business and to think and act with the conscious intent of including all, including all in leadership. Um, so, so it's, it's, um, uh, it's a real issue today. Um, and, um, and, and we all live with some levels of unconscious bias. Um, and, and there are firms out there that do, um, you know, training, um, with, with leaders in, in organizations to help them understand their problem. But number two, how do you get past it uh, and, and create some level of equity and parity around how you treat people in an organization? So um, it, is, it is a, um, a key issue. And, and, and by the way, um, if, if companies uh, don't have a diversity, equity, inclusion officer, uh, this, is, this is the time to do it because I think that's important. Um, and and that that is something that those individuals should be tasked with is how do you lead an organization uh, with a lens around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and to help the organization, the culture, uh, address these issues that relate to hiring, they relate to promotions, they relate to succession, retention, uh, pay equity, uh, and so um, all of those pieces fold into this world of unconscious bias when we think about things that we may do that we're not aware of, that a woman comes in with the same qualifications as a man and somehow she gets less than the guy. Uh, and you say, well, how did that happen? Uh, um, and, and, and we're seeing this over and over again where there's this discontinuity around pay equity um, in, in organizations that were not intentional. Uh, it's just that th these were the, uh, unconscious biases that got laid into uh, a process related to uh, how people are treated and uh, and a move through the organization. One of the tactics that is is discussed in many cases is um, having quotas to foster diversity. Uh, cr critics of quotas underscore that there's a perception that those who benefit from the quotas might be perceived as having gotten their positions with less merit. But on the other hand, there's scientific evidence that quotas actually do help surface candidates who otherwise might not have had a chance to be exposed to or rise to positions of leadership. Um, I'm wondering if, if you, Dale, have any particular perspectives or experience with this healthy tension on that topic. It, it, it is a, a healthy tension and sometimes an unhealthy tension, particularly when you start talking about quotas, because people get um, um, uh, scared that they may lose uh, opportunities or, or may be missed or passed over because someone else has been given uh, an opportunity. Um, you know, I like the term that McKinsey uses called, a, a, you know, how do you create a caring meritocracy? Um, how do you create an environment in business or your organization where you want to be intentional about diversity and inclusion, but you also uh, don't want to sacrifice uh, merit and performance for that uh, in, in any way? 
And I think that's where the, the quota system has gotten a bad rap, uh, is, is people moving through chairs that, quote, may not be qualified. Um, uh, you know, I was just talking to a CEO the other day in a major metropolitan city, and uh, they were talking about uh, this role they wanted uh, us to fill. And they said, we want a diverse slate of candidates, which we said we would, 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 would have. And they say the entire, the, the entire department of, of 47 individuals is all white male. And I thought, wow, that, that, that's kind of hard. You have to work hard to achieve that in a major city like this, where this company is. Um, and and it, it doesn't mean that they're bad. Uh, uh, and they've got some good people there, but 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 can you use the opportunity as people retire, or as people or or or, or uh, performance out, uh, or they die, to to be intentional about creating a, an environment and organization uh, that is more inclusive uh, than one today. And so, uh, I hear the arguments about quotas, but the truth is, from where I sit. Um, most of our organizations at the board level and, and at the C-suite um, uh, don't reflect um, the, the population demographics that, that, that we operate in today. And so there's still lots of room for, for bringing in diverse talent without it being seen as uh, uh, overlooking others uh, who are equally uh, qualified for, for, for the roles. So... Um, I also believe at the end of the day that you don't get what you don't measure. And so it, it, it's, um, it's important to measure those results. It's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to say how are we doing uh, this year versus last year and what can we do to, to strengthen uh, our efforts in some of these areas. Um, but, but, but you don't want to do it uh, with people who don't bring uh, the skills uh, and the track record of performance that, 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 because then you create a de an organization that's demoralized, right, of people who say, well, gee, what do I have to do to be, you know, to get ahead here? You know, do I have to, you know, um, uh, you know, be of a different color? Or do I have to, to, to put on a skirt? Or, you know, your people, people become cynical then uh, if people end up in organizations who, uh, aren't there um, for the right reasons? But by the way, they're 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 white males who don't deliver, and 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 they're not there for the right reasons either. So we have to 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 realize that the playing field uh, of incompetence uh, is is the same as the playing field of of people who are achievers too, uh, and 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 people can be underachievers at all levels um, in organizations. Earlier, you talked about the qualities that you look for in leadership and cultural fit. You've clearly had a lot of success climbing the ranks within your firm, uh, and then you've also seen a lot of leaders in different walks of life. You've placed a number of chief executive officers and board members to companies. Um, I'm curious what advice you have for people who are early in their career. You identified a couple of things around seeking out mentors. Uh, could you elaborate on some practical advice you'd give to people who are earlier in their career about how they might uh, best develop? I think it's important for folks who are in the early stages um, to be intentional about a, a mentor. Um, and it doesn't have to be formal, it doesn't have to be sophisticated, but finding someone who's ahead of you uh, uh, that will give uh, wisdom uh, and insight uh, out of their own experience and, and even out of their own you know, successes and, and failings is, is important. Um, so I just think if, if, if you know, and, and I've had people say to me, you've been my mentor for years. And I've never known that I was a mentor, but 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 but, but somehow I, I happen to play that role in their lives. And I just feel like those uh, those in the early 10 years of their career uh, um, miss something by not uh, walking behind or following or carrying the bag of someone who's more seasoned than they are to get the insight. The other thing I, I think it's important to to read um, about leadership. Um, there's one book called The Leadership Map or The Map by Dr. Keith Eigel, who, who helps leaders understand their personal stories and how their personal stories uh, enable them to understand how they are wired uh, and how the wiring of their personal that comes out of their personal stories uh, has impacted their leadership um, uh, skills and how they think about leadership. Uh, and, and in this book, The Map, by Dr. Keith Eigel, he, he talks about how uh, uh, challenges and crises and failures uh, often 
help uh, develop uh, folks into the next round of leadership because it's through the crucible of suffering and being in crisis or being in challenging experiences that really help you grow and develop. Um, The former chairman of McKinsey said to me uh, 20 years ago, when I got this business, he said, I said to him, what traits ought I be looking for to find leaders? He says, he says, you want to know if a leader a potential leader has ever had a failed rung in his or her life. And I thought failed rung. He says, yeah, you know, like, like climbing the ladder. You want to know, have they ever had a failed experience either personally or professionally? And what lessons have they learned from those experiences that have enabled them uh, to, to become the, the leader they are today? Did they, did they develop a quality of empathy? Uh, did they develop a, uh, a resilience? Um, he said, these are the folks you want to know that they've been through some testing um, that prepare them for the, the, the roles of leadership today because you need to have been through something or allowed yourself to um, 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 have an experience out, uh, beyond your core competence where you've had to rely upon other people uh, uh, to get you through the moment. It could be the personal, um, it could be a personal divorce or it could be a, a death of a parent or a child or a spouse. He says, the thing is, you need people who lean into those crises and experiences because you can become bitter from those and, and, and never move forward and, and develop as a leader. Or you can lean into them and self-author those experiences and allow them to grow you up as a leader uh, that takes you to the next level. Uh, and so uh, I think those early on in their careers should have a mentor. They should, they should read about uh, leadership, but they should also find ways to understand uh, the successes and failures they've had and how they can learn from those and use them uh, as stepping stones for, for the next experience. Are there any books you particularly recommend related to diversity and inclusion, Dale? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, tell you one, one of my favorite uh, uh, folks today is uh, Brian Stevenson, who's become a, a real uh, thought leader about the issues of inequity. Um, his book, Just Mercy, has also been converted into a movie. Um, it, it really deals with the issues of inequities in the justice system and mass incarceration, but but through the but but through the storytelling, there are some powerful lessons learned and conversations to be had around um, around diversity. Um, there's a book by Dr. David Thomas from HBS called Breaking Through. It's it's, it's a little dated, but but it talks about um, you know how do you break through. Uh, uh, what appears to be uh, a glass ceiling, or, uh, or or the you know places that are hard to to navigate uh, in in in, uh, in business. Um, there's a book titled Rethinking Success that's just come out by Dr. Uh, by uh, uh, Doug Holliday, who's a professor at um, um, the McDonald School at Georgetown. I've, I've, I've just finished uh, reading that, and it's a great book. Rethinking Success. Uh, Doug Holliday uh, is one that I would would recommend uh, on, on the book list here of, of, of things. And then one is uh, called Moral Leadership uh, by uh, Robert Michael Franklin, who uh, is a former president of an institution, but also a Ford Foundation fellow, but uh, is um, uh, leads a program on ethics and leadership at Emory University. Uh, and I've been reading his as well. Um, and I feel like we live in a world today where, where moral leadership is often sort of forgotten <laughs> and we, we don't um, uh, take it quite seriously as we, we should. So anyway, those are just a few that come to mind. Um, there are probably others that, that, that some of you would recommend to each other, but those have, have been pretty impactful uh, to me. Thank you so much, Dale. Um, getting here to the conclusion of our conversation, I, I, I wonder if you could share any points of optimism. Um, there's a lot of reason why we should all be concerned and, and use, have that concern be fuel for action. Um, are there things you're seeing that give you reason for optimism during a time of, of relative darkness? There is. I'm hearing corporate leaders and CEOs and chairmen of boards having heartfelt conversations with action plans around what do we do uh, to um, create economic um, um, uh, equity, uh, uh, racial equity. Um, you know, I was, I was talking to a, a Fortune uh, 25 CEO the other day who, 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 who was opining about how important the Black Lives Matter movement is today. And I've thought, oh my God, you know, you know, a few years ago, 
uh, corporate CEOs would not be opining about how important Black Lives Matters is. Okay, and so so I feel like there is a level of um, of heartfelt uh, commitment um, and passion to say if we're going to be the society we need to be, um, how do we close the gaps and disparities in in health and income and wealth uh, and education? For not just black and brown, but from even poor whites in Appalachia uh, and 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 those coming from other countries uh, to make life uh, work for them, uh, I'm hearing that at a level that I've never heard it before, and I'm seeing a level of philanthropy and give back that that that's pretty remarkable. Um, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville, who was the the French sociologist who visited uh, you know America in the you know early 19th century. Um, you know, gave his point of view about what he would see in the U.S. and he talked about faith communities and people was sort of caring for one another. And he makes a comment. He said, he says the one of the things that intrigued him about America. This is a French sociologist. He says uh, intrigues him about America is its ability to repair itself, its ability to sort of say how do we work at at getting better uh, and doing better. And and so I'm optimistic that. Um, uh, we're at a, at a at a watershed moment where lots of people want to do the right thing. Um, that that there are as many whites as blacks in the Black Lives Matter peaceful protest, you know. Um, um, and 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 yet there are there are outliers in everything, right? People who are there for violence and looting and 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 rioting and, and for the wrong reasons. But 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 that's a small group, you know. The, the media continues to play that loop back again. There are more people. Uh, who who are, who are doing the right things out of a right uh, pure motivation, um, and so I'm actually hopeful uh, against the backdrop of so much uh, negativity and, um, uh, and and pain that there is today, that that there are people who who want to um, do good um, and demonstrate a resolve to say let's together work at uh, repairing the breach. Um, and, and finding an inclusive way to embrace the whole community um, rather than just a few of its unequal parts. So I am encouraged uh, in spite of the, the, the headlines. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for that and for this very meaningful conversation uh, uh, that you would take time out of your busy schedule to share some of your wisdom with us is something that all of us are very grateful for. I'm sure I'm speaking for everyone who's involved. Um, I'm also honored to call you a friend, Dale, and look forward to better times when we can get together again in person. Uh, in the meantime, stay safe, healthy, and uh, I'll look forward to our next chance to catch up. All the best. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. Please join me on Monday when my guest will be Jay Upchurch, the Chief Information Officer of SAS Institute.